Bits, the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 82, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Paul Underhill is a partner in Terra Firma Farm, where he manages crop production on 220 acres in the southern Sacramento Valley. Terra Firma Farm raises certified organic vegetables year-round, as well as fruits and nuts, which they sell through a 1,200-member CSA in Sacramento, Davis, and San Francisco, as well as through retailers, wholesalers, and restaurant accounts. Paul gives us a look into operating at scale, including the logistics of a thousand member CSA. We also get a peek into the equipment he's found useful at this scale, including a relatively inexpensive GPS system, multiple bed equipment, and low tech harvest tools. Terra Firma Farm has been around since the 1980s, and Paul tells us about the many changes to California's food and agriculture scene and the impact those have had on Terra Firma's employment practices, equipment acquisition opportunities, CSA program, and food safety practices. Paul also shares the story of how he became a partner at Terra Firma Farm and how they make their partnership work. It was great to have Paul on the show. I hope you enjoy this episode just as much as I enjoyed making it for you. Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. Paul Underhill, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Glad to be here, Chris. Thank you. I think it'd be great if you, we could start off by having you tell us about Terra Firma Farm. Just give us the lay of the land there. All right. Um, Terra Firma farms 220 acres of all certified organic land in Yolo and Solano counties, uh, which is in the southern Sacramento Valley or the uh, northern part of California Central Valley. We're 70 miles northeast of San Francisco and 30 miles northwest of Sacramento. Um, it's a year-round farming area that's hot and dry in the summer uh, and cool and wet in the, norm, in the winter normally although we've had a drought for a couple of years, uh, had a drought a couple of years back. The principal crops growing around us are almonds, walnuts, uh, canning tomatoes, and wine grapes. Um, our area is, used, some people consider it sort of a hotbed of organic CSA vegetable farming, but we're a tiny percent of the overall farm economy in the area. Um, we grow vegetables year round here, as well as asparagus, strawberries, table grapes, stone fruit, citrus, walnuts, and pistachios. We have persimmons, figs, and Asian pears as well. And um, it's not all in one location. Our, our fields are, are spread over about a 10 mile area. We have different soils and different microclimates um, all coming down from the coast range along our uh, water source, which is, which is Puda Creek. Um, so uh, we deliver 900 plus CSA boxes every week to the San Francisco Bay Area, Sacramento and Davis. And we also sell to retailers, wholesalers and restaurants in all of those areas. We have two 24 foot refrigerated box trucks that are on the road going one direction or the other every day, except Monday, most of the year. Um, our CSA peaked back in 2008, right at the start of the recession at about 1300 members. And it's dropped down over the last, uh, several years to where it is now. Um, we have 80 or a few more employees in the summertime on the farm and just over 50 in the winter. Uh, I have two partners. Uh, my, my partner, Paul Holmes started the farm 
back in 1988 and I, and I started working for him in 1993. And I guess we'll probably get into that a little bit more later, but, uh, and then Hector Melendez, who was also an, was an employee of the farm when I started working at the farm as well. A big chunk of Hector's family works for our farm, his wife, his brother, sister-in-law, his son is a delivery driver and his daughter works in our office on when she's home from college in the summertime and several of his cousins. His mom and dad worked for us for a long time, but recently retired. Um, we have numerous employees that have been with us for 10 years or more. An example is uh, we had a harvest manager who worked for us for 10 years, had to leave in 2003, but his son uh, started working for us just last year, sort of continuing the family connection there. With 80 employees in the summertime, where are you getting a labor crew like that? Our farm is largely Spanish speaking. Um, we, we are a year-round employer for, for, mo- uh, for most of our employees. And most of our employees live in the surrounding area, either in winters or in, in uh, uh, there's a few towns that are 10, 12 miles away. Our crew people have you know our farm is like a regular workplace people come to work every day they they have a job they that they do every day um it change you know the work they're doing changes over the course of the year depending on um you know what the crops are and what the tasks are but um for example we have we have two guys who all they do is irrigation uh there are there are irrigation specialists uh we have three people who just drive tractor all day long, every day. Uh, we have a large packing crew that's dedicated to packing in this late winter and spring. When we don't have tons to harvest, they'll come out to the field to help us with hoeing or, or help. They help us out with strawberry harvest at the, which is our kind of our first big crop in the spring with strawberries. But, um, mostly we, we get our, our employees from referrals from other employees. We have a lot of family members on the farm, not just, not just Hector's family that I mentioned earlier, but, um, you know, somebody comes to work at the farm, they, they like it here. They tell their brother or their sister or their cousins. And, and that's how we, over the years, how we've gotten our crew, um, in the summertime when it's, when it's busy, we do work with a labor contractor, a farm labor contractor that provides us with, um, seasonal, seasonal people, uh, who will work for us for two, three, four months in the summertime. It's gotten a lot harder to find seasonal labor in this area. A lot of the hand labor crops have gone away in the last four or five years, been replaced by, uh, almonds in particular and, and walnuts, which are almost entirely mechanical, mechanically farmed. And so people have gone to other places in the state. And, and so it has become more of a challenge that makes it more important for us to provide year round work for as many people as possible. And that's, that's kind of what drove us to go to a, a year round farming, a year round CSA was, was trying to provide a you know, year round employment for people. Is most of the agriculture in your area year round? No, the, the, the primary season here is the dry season. So the, the, the row crop, the, you know, the, the, the equivalent of, uh, corn and soybeans in the Midwest is, is processing tomatoes, believe it or not, um, which are harvested mechanically hundreds of acres of, uh, 
in our county, thousands of acres of processing tomatoes are grown. And it's also a big area for sunflowers for seed, which is sold, uh, you know, seed companies contract with people to grow sunflowers for seed. That's a rotation crop for the, for the processing tomato guys. And then uh, nut crops are, dis, you know, they're deciduous trees. They, they're, they're dormant in the wintertime. They, the work on, on those orchards starts in the springtime when they start to leaf out and, and the harvest is in the fall. When you talk about getting employees through referrals from from employees that you already have, I mean, you said you're a Spanish-speaking farm. Are people already living in the United States, or are you having to interface with the immigration services and try to help people get across the border? Uh, no, we don't. We don't uh, get that involved in the process. Um, you know, if you have a large seasonal labor demand, like you know, you have a cherry or you grow cherries or something, and you need 400 people for a month. That's where people get into working with the H2A. But um, no, we're just, we're just recruiting locally people who live in the area. Um, we, we get a certain amount of, of high school kids with work visas in the summertime. So, you know, their, their parents or uncles or aunts might work, work for us and, and they're 16, 17 and they're looking for summer work. So, um, we always get a, a small crew of, of high school kids in the summertime. Um, but again, it's, it's, uh, you know, those kids all speak English. Obviously they're going to going to school here, but their parents, if their parents speak English, it's not their preferred language. You know, we, uh, are the language that we speak in the fields here is, is Spanish all day long. So, so you're fluent in Spanish. I am, yeah. With that many employees, you must have multiple layers of management. You're not, you're the partners in the farm. The three of you aren't directly telling each person on the farm what to do and making sure that they're doing it the way that you want it done. Yeah. uh, Yeah, obviously. Um, We have, we have the management of our farm kind of split in three uh, in uh, on the partnership level. So my, my job, I'm the, I'm the production manager is, is my job on the farm. So I manage everything up, up until harvest. Um, my partner, Paul Holmes, uh, manages the daily harvest and, um, he has, we have a harvest manager who works for him, who actually manages the, the harvest crew. Um, so he's, you know, he's coordinating orders, uh, figuring out, how much crop we have in the field, you know, what percentage is going in the CSA boxes, what needs to get sold, uh, all that, all that kind of stuff. And, and, um, and then Hector runs our packing shed, which is, you know, obviously for, for any farm, it's a big, big chunk of the work, but, um, on our farm, we have almost as many people in the packing shed as we do in the field where we're, we're bagging up items for CSA boxes, you know, 900 bags of whatever it is, green beans or, uh, potatoes and then packing the CSA boxes. And then we're also, uh, doing quality control on, on that stuff. And then, then on also on the packing that we do for uh, restaurants and stores and wholesalers. And then as far as middle management goes, then we do, yeah, then below the partnership level, you know, we have people, um, managing crews. We have crew leaders. Uh, we have, like I mentioned, our harvest manager kind of 
directs traffic. <laughs> who's who's going where? Who's doing what? We have multiple locations. Uh, we we have crops at different ranches um, all the time. So we'll have you know on a on a, this time of year, like we'll have a small crew in the in doing peaches or or picking grapes. Uh, then we have a big crew doing tomatoes, which is our main cash crop in the summertime and you know a smaller crew will be picking cucumbers and and summer squash um so we have a crew we have then we have a crew leader for each of those crews you're spread over a 10 mile area how are you moving crews to those locations and produce back from those locations so that um you know uh we try to move people around as little as possible on a day on a daily basis uh so uh, you know a crew um will be working at one ranch for at least half the day um and then at lunchtime they might hop in their cars and drive to a a different location uh to work for the afternoon we have field trucks that go between the fields we have this time of year, we actually have three different trucks that are moving crop. Um, some of them are refrigerated. Some are just flatbeds uh, that that's that go by each field where we're harvesting and and pick up stuff and bring it back to our packing shed. Our packing shed is actually not on any of the other parcels that we farm. It's a large warehouse facility that is smack in the middle of all of our fields. Uh, sort of, you know, sort of equidistant. Um, and, and so it's a constant flow of product, uh, going into the packing shed over the course of the day. And we try not to, especially this time of year, we try not to have anything sitting, um, sitting out for very long, you know, anything more than an hour and a half or so. Uh, if we do have a lot of stuff in one location, we'll have, we'll have a refrigerated truck there that the product is being stored in. And then the driver will show up with another truck and take the truck that's loaded back to the, back to the packing shed. So yeah, it's a fairly complex, uh, operation that we have. And what is a, and what does a packing shed look like for 200 acres of, of vegetables, fruits, and nuts in California? Well, we really kind of scored, uh, we, we, we're renting. This is a facility that that a neighbor of ours built. Um, uh, didn't have any cold storage at it. We had to we had to add the cold storage. We we added four refrigerated trailers um, that that we sort of nestled in between the the warehouse buildings. But it's a big. It's it's not air conditioned, but it's a swamp cooled. Um, it's a very large. I don't remember the square footage off the top of my head, but it's a big building. It you can stack bins in there. Uh, six high, uh, so 20, 24 feet high. Um, and we do that. We also use that as, you know, we store onions, garlic, winter squash, sweet potatoes in that warehouse. Cause it's not, it's not refrigerated. So you don't want to have things that need to actually be cooled in there, but it's a nice facility. Um, we got inspected by OSHA a few years back and they were real concerned about, you know, the heat and the, the ocean inspector walked into the building and she was just like, this is a really nice place to work, you know? <laughs> so, um, so it's plenty of space for us to store stuff, but then we also have, you know, sorting tables and we have a CSA pack packing line. It's just a roller conveyor that the boxes are rolled along and people, you know, have their stations and they're putting the items into the boxes as, as the boxes go by. We have forklifts, a couple forklifts there. So everything's unloaded by forklift and there's quite a bit of concrete, uh, 
everything is either forklifted or pallet jacked around and we can pull stuff in and out of the, the, the coolers with a pallet jack or with a forklift. It's, it, you know, makes the work a lot, a lot more manageable. And then we have our refrigerated trucks that we actually load our trucks. We load, we, we pack and load into our trucks at the end of the day. So once the stuff is, is packed and the pallets are organized, the CSA pallets or the store pallets, they go straight into the uh, delivery trucks, which are plugged in. And, and so, you know, we can put the cool produce into the cool truck and it stays there um, overnight and the drivers come in early in the morning and j- jump in the trucks and away they go. So you guys are managing your own logistics for doing deliveries. Yep. How many trucks are you guys managing and how many delivery days are you running those for? So we're, we're on the road six days a week this time of year. Uh, we have two trucks every day, two full-time drivers. Um, the, uh, Tuesday through Saturday, uh, we have two trucks on the road and Sunday, it's usually just one truck, but, um, yeah, going one direction or the other, depending some days, one truck goes to Sacramento, one goes to San Francisco. Some days they both go to San Francisco. Some days, I think only one day of the week, they both go to Sacramento. And then I noticed on your website, you guys are doing home delivery in San Francisco. We outsourced that. <laughs> okay. We, uh, we, you know, uh, we looked at it f- over the years and, you know, I talked to some other farmers to try to figure out, could we organize, you know, something down there in the Bay area, a small warehouse with some fans. Nobody was interested in doing that. Um, and then just last year, I believe this company in San Francisco, uh, approached us about doing it. And so they, we, uh, we, we work with them. It's, it's integrated into the way we do our CSA ordering, but, uh, we don't actually deliver it. We deliver the boxes to them first thing in the morning, and then they deliver them to our subscribers and it costs the subscribers $6, which, um, is less than it would cost uh, for us to do it. We're, you know, the trucks that we're driving, um, are, pretty full. And we do three different sizes of CSA boxes, a small, medium, and large size. And the way that we do it is we don't label the boxes as they're going into the truck. We label the driver labels them as they come out. We put a label with the person's name on it that, uh, because there's three different size boxes in the truck, the driver's got kind of a job at each, at each drop site to, you know, get X number of medium boxes, X number of large boxes, X number of small boxes. And if the pallets were pre-organized, it would, it would be a nightmare, an organizational nightmare in our packing shed. You know, you'd have to have some sort of crazy schematic diagram that some, some poor person would have to try to follow, you know, on the ground in the packing shed. So I've never, I've never seen the, the logic in doing that. So yeah, so we're outsourcing the home delivery. Yeah. Not to mention, I worked for UPS, uh, during the Christmas rush one time out in Seattle back in the mid 1990s and 200 deliveries was a big day oh, yeah. for two people working in the truck. And we would cover an area that was maybe two miles on a side yeah. for that, you know, so trying to do home delivery across the city, I, I can't imagine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have, as it is, we have 25 drop sites just in San Francisco um, uh, that's over, uh, we do two delivery routes in San Francisco on Thursday and one on Wednesday. So that's, 
you know, over, over the three delivery routes. But yeah, you're basically at each drop site for, mo you know, if you're done in half an hour, you're cruising because some of our drop sites, it's again, our CSA has shrunk considerably, but back in the day, we had a drop site where you were unloading almost 50 boxes. So that takes a while. <laughs> well, and especially if it's one of those where you're, where it's not, not right at the curb, you know, oh, you got, yeah. <laughs> you got some, if you got some walking to do 50 boxes takes a long time. Yeah, or stairs. We have some, we have some drop sites with stairs. <laughs> I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> or, or maybe I should say, what are you thinking? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's, we were beggars can't be choosers in San Francisco. Um, for a long time, the biggest obstacle to, to us expanding our CSA was finding enough drop sites um, because, you know, uh, real estate is, is hard to come by in San Francisco. And just because you live in an apartment or even a house doesn't mean you've got any place that's appropriate uh, to put even 10 CSA boxes, you know, um, has to be has to be relatively safe. Obviously, you can't just pile them on the sidewalk because people steal them. Um, and, and it has to be shady San Francisco, not so much of an issue, but, but if it's, if you get afternoon sun on the CSA boxes, even in San Francisco, you know, you can cook, you can cook a lot of produce. So it, ha it ha you know, we have a list of requirements for our drop sites and, and a lot of places there's just not, and you know, we've never had more drop sites than we need. Let me put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Tell me a little bit about how your CSA is structured. I know a lot of folks out West are doing like a month to month yeah. sales is, are you guys following that same model? We are. And it's, it's even worse than that because we basically let people take, um, take weeks off whenever they want to. Um, so, you know, at any given time, I haven't looked lately, but I, I think we still have 1200 paid subscribers, but we're only delivering nine, 900 to 950 boxes a week. Uh, which means that any given week, you know, a quarter of our customers are taking the week off. So, wow. Yeah. It's, <laughs> but you know, this is California and people can walk into, I mean, you know, you can't, it's hard to avoid produce in California these days. Like, you know, you, you, you walk down the street, there's a farmer's market. You, you um, walk into the store and, and there's a giant display of, beautiful produce. Um, you go into a restaurant, everything's local, uh, you know, so Californians are super spoiled, uh, about, about produce as opposed to people in, in a lot of places in the country. And, you know, really I'm listening to some of your other shows. I, I'm very much aware of that as I'm listening to, to people talk about, about doing a CSA in another, in another part of the country, because people have really high standards here and, and, and really, and, it makes doing a CSA harder. Uh, it does. So the day that we're doing this interview actually happens to be the the day I, I found out that uh, Trauger Grow passed away yesterday. And you know Trauger um, Grow wrote a book back in 1990 called Farms of Tomorrow that I think was very influential about about the early thinking around CSAs and very different than a lot of the models that we're that we're doing now. I'm curious in in with your CSA, what are you guys doing that, that makes you stand out, that gives you a marketing edge or, or, you know, helps to build that community aspect that I think is so important with the CSA? Well, it's tough. Um, 
you know, for a while we didn't, for a long time, we didn't have to do anything. We had a, we had a waiting list for our CSA for years. Um, and, uh, we were, we were just in kind of, you know, balls to the wall, keep up with production mode. Um, we were expanding our acreage, um, you know, planting, planting fruit trees to try to respond to people's requests for, you know, I've, I've never been a big fan of buying in stuff for CSA, for the CSA, although, uh, you know, that's, that's a whole nother subject at this point in time. But, um, and, um, we were one of the first CSAs in San Francisco, not definitely not the first, cause there was a couple of sort of pioneers, but we, we were the, we, we, our CSA kind of took off right as the interest was expanding and, um, and we really benefited from that a lot. And so we didn't have to do much to market our CSA and, you know, I've been doing a CSA newsletter for 20 years. Um, and I have some really loyal readers and we have some really loyal, awesome subscribers. And for a long time, we just, we had more demand than we could supply just from word of mouth, you know, up until, like I said, 2008, we were, we, we had like 150 people on a wait list. (laughs) So, um, and then, and then it started to turn around and, and so, we haven't, we haven't really addressed that. We've kind of been backfilling, uh, just trying to, just trying to keep all the numbers up. We've been backfilling by, by selling, by growing more for, for wholesale to, to tell you the truth. And, uh, and, and we're, we're running into a wall on that because of, um, you know, because of the cost of labor here is, is going up, is being legislated up dramatically. And, and so, it's, it's becoming even harder to compete on the wholesale front. Uh, so we do, we, 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 other than the newsletter, we, we do a once a year event. There's a lot of, of farms that are doing events all the time now. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't have, we still don't have time to do that. You know, we're, we're, we are a pretty serious production farm and, um, we're not big enough that we can do, you know, like some of the, sort of fake CSA farms, I call them, um, actually have events at their farm every weekend now. And they have, you know, somebody on staff who that's just their job to, <laughs> wow. you know, to do the weekend event for their customers. We're, uh, we have, we have our customers up to the farm once a year. It's usually, we can, we also cap that because one year we had, uh, we had 600 people show up and the CHP, the Highway Patrol shut us down because we caused a traffic jam at the entrance, <laughs> entrance to the farm. <laughs> um, so we we have a we we cap it now at 375 people, but it's still it's it's a huge it's huge you know it's a huge event. Um, just planning the parking is is a big job, and then and, and and making sure that there's enough stuff for people to do, and um, and then actually you know trying to get around and you know, say hi to everybody because <laughs> that's what they're there for, right? They're there to meet, to meet you. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so the, the, the that's a very long answer of my way of saying, I don't know. Uh, yeah. That's a fair answer. How are you guys managing your CSA membership then? I mean, if you've got, if you've got people signing up for a month at a time and then taking off on vacation and trying to keep track of all that and across your 25 different delivery sites, what's, how are you making all that work? Well, uh, we use, we use Farmigo, um, the, uh, software to, to, um, help us manage the CSA. Um, 
we don't get massive fluctuation and we don't get people quit joining and quitting all the time uh, because we don't do, we don't do promotions. You know, we're not doing like, there's a, there's, there's people out here that are doing Groupon, you know, where you get two weeks free. And I mean, that's like a guaranteed way to get a lot of churn in your CSA, right? Cause you get people who are, have no intention of <laughs> no intention right. of sticking around. They just want the free boxes. And so we don't do that. We don't, our numbers don't go up and down dramatically. Uh, are they sort of ebb and flow? It's pretty predictable. Um, we always get a, our numbers always jump up in January, which is not the worst time of year for that to happen, but pretty close to the worst time for it to happen because we, you know, our winter season, um, is it's limited what we have available, although obviously not con- compared to some other places in the country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk about limited in January. <laughs> but you know, we um, you know we have uh, t- twenty thirteen. We had a freeze in December. It was seventeen degrees for uh, three nights in a row, and we lost all of our citrus, all of our brassicas, all of our leafy greens, all of our beet tops. Um, and so all we had, uh, to put in the CSA boxes was stuff we had managed to pick before the, the freeze. Cause they did tell us it was coming. Um, and then, and, and storage crops, including carrots, which were in the ground and store leeks and carrots that were digging out of the ground. But then our, our storage crops, potatoes, winter squash and sweet potatoes, and nuts and things like that. Um, and, and meanwhile, you know, we got 150 new or 150 uh, new subscribers on January 7th. Um, and we're like, you know, great. This is really good timing. Um, just because you can grow something here doesn't mean you should. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, there, uh, um, even the things that work here in the wintertime only work nine out of 10 years. You know, you, uh, we have, we have crops that get you know, in really wet years, we get disease issues and we'll lose, um, you know, certain crops. And then there's, there's freezes as well. So, so something interesting that I saw when I was thumbing through the pictures on your site is you guys actually divide your CSA boxes into four separate compartments. When we're packing melons in the boxes, we do that, uh, because, because the melons roll around and squash other things. So that's not a, that's not a constant thing that's happening with those. That's only, only during melon season. Yeah. Mel, when we have melons and peaches and tomatoes in the box at the same time, uh, which is right now, um, that's what we do, uh, to, to avoid a lot of refunds. Well, yeah. And then I just, I just brought up another thing that, you know, maybe real CSAs don't do, but yeah, you know, somebody gets a squash bag of tomatoes or a squash bag of peaches and they, very nicely tell us that they're very sad and they want, wish and they wonder if they can have a credit. And so we do issue credits for produce that is damaged in, in transit. Kind of a constant ongoing management process with your CSA members. It's only ongoing if, if we screw something up. <laughs> the dividers, um, it looked like in the picture that basically it's two pieces of cardboard running diagonally in, in the interior of the box are the, is that something you purchased or is that something you guys are jimmying up on your own? Uh, no, they, they're melon box dividers. They, it's actually a, oh. it's a, a standard industry standard thing for, for cantaloupes and other melons. Uh, it's, it's, they call it a star, but it's not a star. It's, it's actually a folding. It's a, it's a, it's a square 
and it's got, it folds in on the corners. And so you can fold it into a 90 or you can have it open into a square or you can make it straight and sort of wedge it between things. And depending on uh, what we're doing, we use it in different ways. Yeah. So we buy those. So you mentioned growing in the winter and, and some of the challenges that that brings with your location, because you guys have a really dry season in the summertime and then a really, and, and, and is it a, a really wet season in the winter or is it, are you guys still out there actually doing farming in the winter time? Oh no, we're, we're farming all winter. We, we harvest, um, we harvest, uh, 50 weeks of the year. We take off the, the week before the week of Christmas and the week of new year's. Um, farming in the winter here, I'm from, I'm from New York. Actually, I'd never farm. Well, I, I worked on a, farm in Pennsylvania, but, uh, not a vegetable farm. And, uh, so farming in the winter here is more like farming in the summer back there in that, um, you know, we can't get into the fields when it's raining. It, it definitely, we have uh, our soil here is, you know, when it gets wet, we, we have to let it dry out for a, a few days to a week before we can work it. So we do harvest in the rain when we have to. We try to work around the weather events so that we don't harvest in the rain that often, uh, especially if it's a real downpour. Um, you know, it's sort of unpleasant working environment. It also it also screws up the, the soil. Um, uh, the crops don't look so great when when you're when they're covered in mud. It's a lot more work to wash them. But so we, we kind of have this scramble where, you know, we'll sort of be doing our thing for a week or two in the winter and it's and it's damp, but and cool, but not raining. And then and then we'll get the forecast for a storm and we'll sort of go into scramble mode where we'll try to get everything harvested that we need for a few days. And because the stuff we're growing that time of year uh, is less perishable than what we're growing in the summer. Let's just put it that way. So, um, you know, in, in the wintertime we grow brassicas, uh, salad greens, carrots, leeks, um, even citrus. You can't pick citrus when it's raining because it, it, uh, if you put it in the cooler when it's soaking wet, it molds almost instantly. So we have to let the citrus dry. But so if we have like a week of rain coming, we send, you know, like a, double size crew out to the citrus to like pick as much, as much citrus as possible before the rain gets there. And same thing with, with whatever other crops, um, um, are either the farthest from a gravel road or the crops that are the hardest to harvest in the rain. So, and then the same thing goes with, with planting. We plant, um, we plant all the way up until the first week of December. Um, and then we start planting again in January. Um, the the shorter the days are, the less we can actually successfully plant. So you know, in, in this sort of depth of winter, we can only we can only plant a few things. We plant spinach and beets, and carrots. Um, we transplant onions. Uh, that's that's about it. And um, but because you never know when it's going to dry out again once it starts raining, we. Sh- I'm sure you're familiar with this process as, as anybody who works someplace where, where farms, where it rains, you try to get as much done as you can before it rains. Cause you don't know when it's going to dry out again. And you're, you're cultivating, you're, um, you're prepping ground, uh, you're planting. There's a whole, there's a, you know, a big list of stuff that, that we try to do in between rains because from a production perspective, there's, there's not much 
that you can do when it rains. I'm a skier and we're two hours from Tahoe here. So I'll tend to, you know, work a whole bunch. And then when it starts raining here, it means it's snowing in Tahoe. So then I can go skiing for a day. <laughs> <laughs> you earn your time off that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about about what production looks like on your 150 acres of vegetables then. What kinds of systems are you guys using for, let's just start with tillage and kind of work from there. Okay. Um, uh, basically, well, where I would start is with cover crops um, because we we try to do as many, as much cover cropping as we can. Our acreage, one of the reasons that we do as much acreage as we do is to try to do as much cover cropping as possible. And so we'll often start with a, with a cover crop that's grazed down by sheep. Um, and we do a permanent, a semi-permanent bed system. So we have a, uh, a bed renovating tool that we run on a, a 110 horsepower tractor. It's got ripping, ripping shanks and, and a tandem disc gang and a roller in the back. And we can run that thing in about five to seven miles an hour. It does just one 60 inch bed at a time but, um, two passes and then, and then we roll the field with a ring roller and then we're ready to pre-irrigate, um, for whatever crop is going to go in there in the winter time. We try to get that done before the rain, we get the rain to pre-irrigate for us. Um, and then we do our, our final tillage pass with a rotary harrow, uh, power harrow, which I've, I've, uh, is really a wonderful tool for organic farmers. You, uh, you get a nice flush of weeds on your beds and then you hit, you hit the beds with the power harrow, which, um, instead of spinning, uh, you know, it doesn't bring up any soil like a rototiller does. It, 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 it mixes the soil instead. Um, but it does the same job of killing the weeds and makes a nice, a nice seed bed, whether you're transplanting or, or direct seeding. Um, so that's our, that's our program right there. You know, I've, I've really tried to reduce our diesel consumption and also, uh, how long it takes us to get stuff, stuff done. I like getting things done quick. I'm, I'm a New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> you said 60 inch beds. Is that a 60 inch bed top or is that, is no. that wheel center to wheel center? Wheel center to wheel center. Um, and we do, we actually do now a lot of our planting on, uh, three 60 inch beds we, we transplant a lot of our crops three beds at a time. Um, the power harrow that we have is, is 15 feet wide. So we do, we do three, uh, center to center, 60 inch beds. And then we follow through with cultivating, uh, three beds at a time. And that's something that I picked up from watching, uh, watching the processing tomato growers in this area. Um, uh, you know, just looking at the equipment they're using, we, one way that we've benefited from the conversion of a lot of the, of the row crop ground in this area from, uh, from row crops to orchards is by being able to buy all equipment at auction that we never, never would have been able to afford otherwise. Um, so I've, I've gotten some really nice cultivation equipment and you know, that too, that just, that speeds things up means you have less tractors, tractors working, less, you have to train fewer tractor drivers. And for us, the transplanting, especially when we're transplanting in the summer and fall, uh, for example, we start transplanting leeks 
in June. And it can be, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, it can be 105, 106 degrees in June. Uh, and so we have about a three hour window to transplant. So we start at six in the morning and, and we need to be done by nine so that we can get those transplants irrigated before it gets really hot. So, uh, the th- doing three beds at a time with that really, really helps us knock out the, the transplants. So when you're cultivating three beds at a time, what kind of equipment are you doing that with? Because obviously you're not set up on a, you know, in, in my area here in the upper Midwest, most of the cultivating is done with belly mounted equipment. Yep. That's, that must not be the case where you are. No, we use, we use rear, we use rear three point mounted, uh, toolbars and the, the toolbar system in California, um, is really pretty prevalent out here. It's, uh, it's all based on two and a quarter. Um, they call them diamond bars, but it's just a square tube that's offset and, and, and it has, and you run clamps on, on those toolbars that are, that accept either a three quarter inch diameter or three, three quarter inch wide shank or a five eighths inch wide shank. And, and those, that, those shanks are also sort of universal. They have two holes in the bottom and you can bolt either, uh, either sweeps or, um, they call them banana knives to cultivate the, the sides of the furrows, or you can put, uh, Alabama sweeps, you know, all, all the different cultivating tools. And the whole thing is totally adjustable because the, the bars, um, the clamps slide along the bars and there's just, there's, there's two bolts that hold the clamp onto the toolbar and one bolt that holds the shank onto the clamp. And so it's all, it's all really easy to adjust and move stuff around. Um, uh, you know, when you're doing a, a 15 foot setup, it can still be a lot of adjustment. So we try to, we try to set the cultivators up at the start of the season for one or another crop and then sort of leave it that way through the season. And when the, when the season for that crop changes, we might change the cultivator around, but those things are scalable. I mean, you can, you can go, we have, we have cultivators like that that are set up at just uh, one bed that just do one bed, but everything's behind the tractor. We don't, we don't do anything with belly bars. So how are you guiding that equipment? Do you, do you have somebody back there steering it or is, is it, is your tractor driver just looking over his shoulder all the time? How does that work? Well, um, you know, you try to start out with, with straight beds and, um, and the, the guidance system is one of two things. Primarily there's, there's, uh, they call them sled runners that they're depth control, but they also follow, um, in the bottom of the furrow and they're usually three or four feet long. So they go back behind the tractor tire about three feet back into the furrow. So they, they keep the sled from moving around too much. And then there's these things called cone wheels, which are two foot diameter, uh, cone shaped discs that sort of hug the sides of the bed and keep the cultivator from, from moving back and forth too much. And so are you dealing with, with laser leveled fields in your, in your acreage? Yes. I mean, you're, yes. okay. Yes. So you're not obviously not farming on the contour and doing kind of the crazy crazy things like that. Nope. But we, we don't, we don't only have laser leveled fields. And in fact, we started out with, um, with didn't have, we didn't have any. Um, and so, you know, this stuff works for, uh, works for sloping fields. It, it works better if you're, um, 
not contour. Well, we, no, no one does contours in California. Everything is <laughs> everything's straight lines, whether it's an orchard or a, or a, uh, or a big tomato field or, or even, you know, a, the small farmers, everybody's pretty much doing straight lines. And part of that's because you're flat enough that it's, that's not an issue, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. That sounds like a qualified guess. But. <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've, there's places, I mean, down, I don't know if you've ever been to, uh, to the EcoFarm conference, uh, uh, down in Monterey, that area in, um, Watsonville, they grow a ton of strawberries there on beds on slopes that are just as steep as anything anybody's got in the Midwest or back East. And, and they're doing it that way too. What kind of seeding technology are you using on, on this sort of an acreage? We have a Matermac air planter for our large seeded stuff, uh, for melons, uh, cucumbers, winter squash, summer squash, corn and sweet corn. Um, and then we, um, we use Stan Hay for carrots, beets, spinach, lettuce, um, arugula, kale. With the, the with the punched belts yep. old, for those crops. Okay. Stan Hay, yeah. Um, yeah. I got a I got a big old toolbox full of <laughs> full of Stan Hay belts. <laughs> we, we do uh, we do three uh, three rows uh, on a sixty inch bed of of all those crops, all the crops I just listed. And then when it comes to when it comes time to do your harvesting, is that something that I mean, obviously, a lot of it's done by hand because it's it's veg, fresh market vegetables. Yep. But have you guys mechanized some of your harvest? We have a we have a, a um, Pixhall bean harvester um, for a similar reason that I've heard other people say on your show. You know, green bean uh, subscribers want green beans in their boxes, um, but we in the middle of summer we just don't have enough people or time to harvest a thousand pounds of green beans. Uh, you know, to, um, for our subscribers. So, and uh, I like growing green beans as a rotation crop and, and sort of as a, you know, sort of a semi cover crop. Uh, so we do grow green beans. We do harvest them mechanically. And then we have a mechanical uh, potato digger that we also use for sweet potatoes. Um, but other than that, we're you know, as for as big as 150 acres sounds, r- the reality of our farm is we are because we farm all year round. Uh, we we do numerous successions on a you know on a not huge scale. So an example would be something like spinach. We grow um, a half acre to an acre of spinach planted every two weeks for. 30 weeks out of the year, you know, so that, that spinach is being, we're growing 30 acres of spinach every year. It gets rotated all over the farm, but we're never harvesting, you know, acres and acres at a time. So we could never justify having a spinach harvester, for example, like if, you know, even in the, you know, even someplace in the Midwest where your season's shorter, you, if you were doing five acres of spinach every week, you could probably justify having, having that. But, um, most of our crops, we're only we're harvesting an acre or less per week of each crop, and you know to 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 amortize a piece of machinery, it 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 it's kind of hard to make that pencil out. Um, and then, so what we do use, what we do, one of the things we do use to make our harvest efficient, and I, I don't know if if this is something that's available anyplace else in the country, but we use uh, what's called macro bins. They are there's different sizes, but the ones we use are pallet sized 
and they're uh, three and a half to four feet deep. Uh, they're they're a pallet footprint, and they're made out of they're made out of plastic. They're vented, where you can also get solid ones. Um, we use those for half the crops we grow, um, and there's trailers that they fit on. These sort of uh, four, they fit four bins on a trailer. You can tow them behind a truck. You can tow them behind a tractor. They tilt, and the bins roll off the back, so you can you know roll up to your packing shed, pop the um, pop the pin out the whole, and then drive forward and the whole thing tilts up and the, and the bins just roll off the back. And so we use those things all the time and we have hundreds of them. Um, so we use those for everything from, from leafy greens and beets to in the, in the wintertime and citrus to, and carrots to, um, we harvest our onions and garlic into them in the, in the early summer. And then we harvest melons and watermelons into them. We harvest winter squash into them. Uh, so that's our, uh, um, kind of our harvest efficiency there. And we do have a couple of platforms, three point, they're just old truck flatbeds, uh, that mount on a three point hitch and, and, and we can drive the tractor through the field when we're harvesting something like tomatoes, um, our, our, indi- our, our determined tomatoes, when we can't throw something into a bin, we're using that harvest, uh, platform. So, so people will put their boxes onto the, onto the platform as they're going through the field instead of walking stuff all the way out. And then with the macro bins, people aren't harvesting directly into those with a crop like spinach. I would imagine they're, they're harvesting to another container and then pouring that into the bin. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then, and then we're also, uh, washing the spinach into, we put a liner in it and, and we wash the spinach and, and fill the, fill the bin up, take the bin to the, to the packing shed. And, you know, when it's time to pack our CSA boxes, um, half the packing stations around that, that roller conveyor are bins full of stuff. Um, and people are just pulling the, pulling the washed produce directly out of those bins and putting it into the boxes. Um, so like carrots or potatoes, you know, things like that. They're, uh, yeah. So we, we use them at every stage of the process. Uh, they're, they're as opposed to, for example, like having a harvest belt for, for broccoli, which I, you know, I honestly would love to have one of those, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, it would sit around for most of the year. Whereas our macro bins are never sitting around They uh, our only issue with the macro bins is when we run out of them. And I get a call from Victor from our harvest manager saying we're out of bins, you know, <laughs> they're all full, you know, it's, <laughs> they're all being used or they're all full of something. And, um, so yeah, we know we're getting our money's worth out of them. So with that, Paul, I'd like to stop here, take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Paul Underhill from Terra Firma Farm out in Winters, California. All righty. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes for certified organic transplant production. And while it's hard to start thinking now about next year's potting soil in the middle of the current season, you don't want to miss participating in Vermont Compost Company's fall pre-buy program. When you order Vermont Compost potting soil for next year's growing season, you can save significantly on the finest potting soil that I personally have ever used. There are many great options for significant savings. Vermont Compost Company organizes share 
truckload weeks, when they organize and group orders by state or region. When you place your order to ship on one of these shared truckloads, they offer discounts on the purchase of your potting soil. Plus, they consolidate the orders so growers also save on shipping fees. Now, if you want to get the best possible deal on Vermont compost potting soil, order a full truckload. If you don't need a full truckload yourself, get together with your farming friends and neighbors and order a full truckload together. This option offers the best possible price per sling bag or pallet and the best possible shipping rate. It's also the best option for growers who are a great distance away from Vermont. Growers who pre-buy full truckloads often end up paying a price for their sling bags that is lower than what growers pay for a sling bag picked up in Vermont. The fall pre-buy program runs September 21st to December 21st. For more information, visit the website, vermontcompost.com. Bandwidth for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it's a truly superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. And we're back with Paul Underhill from Terra Firma Farm out in Winters, California. So, Paul, one of the things that that you and I had communicated about a little bit before the show was was your use of a GPS system on your farm. Yeah, you know, every year I I I give myself a little project to work on, and um, on on my farm I'm the only person who who marks out all the beds. Um, everybody else is scared to do it, uh, and it's it's one of those things that it's not just a time consuming task, but it's also a little bit nerve wracking. We have we have a bunch of fields that are on county roads and, uh, uh, you know, when you're marked, when you're bedding up a field that, you know, 20 other farmers are going to drive by every day, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, last thing you want to do is have a bunch of squiggles out there. But, um, like I said earlier, the, um, straight beds are kind of the foundation for us from everything from tillage through cultivate through transplanting and cultivation and, um, and when we when when our beds get screwed up, it costs us a lot of money to redo them. We 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 disc the field down, and we then we we kind of smooth it out. It takes a lot of time um, and a lot of energy. Costs a lot of money. So so I was looking at the GPS for the tractors and kind of was shocked at how much how much you know bigger farmers are paying to do this. And it's it's uh it's what they call a lockbox system. Uh, I won't name any names, but the company that the the primary company that does it, you know, you got to pay them thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, not just to buy their technology, but then to use it. You know, uh, you got to keep paying them for it every year. Um, the the basic setup that that you're seeing your big farm neighbors use is is costing them twenty thousand dollars, and then. And then another couple thousand dollars a year of, of subscription fees that they pay just for the privilege of continue, continuing to use it. Um, so when I heard about there, a bill, a bill was passed. Uh, our federal government passed a bill um, requiring all states and municipalities to make their 
their GPS facilities available to the general public. And what that means is uh, they, everybody has these base stations that are continually you know, broadcasting um, a, a location that an agricultural GPS unit can pick up on and, and do the triangulation that the ag GPS needs to get the super accuracy. You know, agricultural GPS is accurate to within uh, half an inch. And the only way that they can do that, and you can't do that on your phone or on your, on your, you know, on your little, on your car GPS is because you need this third data point or second data point rather that the three devices, the satellite, the base station, and, and your GPS will have to communicate to get the accuracy. So when, once this bill was passed, uh, this farmer out in Nebraska, whose, uh, name I can't pronounce, Lefebvre, or, uh, he, he built an Android app so that, um, using a Bluetooth connection, you can buy a standard GPS unit for your tractor, which looks like a heavy duty computer, you know, a computer that you'd take out in your tractor and, and using your phone or, or, uh, or a tablet with a Bluetooth connection, you can connect to your local, your town or your municipality or the local university. You can connect to their base station and get the correction data, they call it, to get your GPS to work to within a, a half an inch of accuracy. But prior to that, you had to buy a radio from, from the company, from the Ag GPS company. It was $10,000. And then you had to pay them to use it a couple thousand dollars a year. So, um, you know, again, this is not, it's still not cheap. You know, the unit for your tractor is costs about $700. You can get them on eBay. Uh, and then you still have to buy the software package from, from Trimble uh, that they charge you another $1,500 for or something. But basically, so now for $2,000 and your cell phone, you can have the same accuracy of GPS as, as the guys running the, you know, 24 foot wide harvesters. Now, is this something that you're using for steering the tractors or is this just, just for bed layout? Just for bed layout. The, the auto steer, um, uh, to, that's another, you know, X number of thousands of dollars. And I haven't, I haven't budgeted for that <laughs> yet. It's right. on my wish list, but you know, farmers have long wish lists. Um, basically what this, the best thing about, uh, about the GPS, the way that I'm doing it, it's just, it means that the little lights on the computer unit are super accurate and you go out to the field, you just pick a line, you, you, you pick a starting line and a finish line and you drive that line and, and the computer straightens it for you and then tells you where it is. And, and then you follow that same line through the whole field. By, by following the dots yep. on the computer. Essentially. The dots, okay. That's right. And, and for me, I didn't, I, I kept the guidance system on my, on my, on my bed machine, which is, which is a, uh, a disc or an arm with a disc on it that marks a line in the dirt. Right. Um, right. But of course, when you're marking out beds, you get to the end of the field, the, the disc arm is behind the tractor. And so wherever you stop, the line that you marked is 10 or 15, 20 feet behind, behind you, um, or, you know, behind the front of the tractor. So you turn around to come back and, and you've got 20 feet that you've got to sort of guess where to start again. And, the, and, 
and the unit on the tractor uh, tells you exactly where it is. So you get the green light, but um, but that's not even the the best thing about this for me is that if you do, if something happens to that field, whatever, if you have to disc it up or say you harvest potatoes and those beds get kind of messed up, um, you've always got those beds in, in the unit, in the computer unit, the GPS unit. Um, you know, you enter the name of the field, you enter the, the, the width of whatever job you're doing and it stores it in there so that two years, three years down the road, you come back to that field and, and you can just start right where, where you left off with those beds. You don't have to spend, you know, I mean, I don't know how anybody else does it, but anytime we were starting a new field, I'd spend a couple hours out there trying to figure out, trying to make sure the, you know, marking out the bed, it's kind of a two person job. If you have a field that's more than a hundred feet long, um, somebody's walking back and forth with whatever marking flags, you know, and then this is something that too is going to cut down on your compaction because you're you're always traveling in the same the same wheel print that you were before. Correct. Great. So we'll link to that the the one that we don't know how to pronounce, but <laughs> lefewer.com. So you know if you're if you're out there currently steering your tractor, uh, don't feel like you have to get that written down. We'll make sure that we've got a link on the show notes. If you want to go to farmertofarmerpodcast.com, you just search for Underhill, and and that'll take you to the right page that'll have that link on it. So, Paul, tell us a little bit about how you came to the farm and, and how how you got involved to the point where you actually became a partner and then how that whole relationship has evolved since 1993 when you came to the farm. OK, yeah, um, I, I uh, I'm from New York. As I said, I was living in New York City um, working for an environmental nonprofit and I moved out to San Francisco. I got a job out in San Francisco, moved out for a job. It didn't work out. And, uh, but I got to go to the eco farm conference in, in Asilomar that year as part of my job and, and met some organic farmers kind of, you know, got excited about it. And, um, and so when I decided to leave my job, I thought, oh, before I move back to New York, I'll, I'll go work on a farm in California. And so I started calling up farmers back in the day from, uh, CCOF, our organic certifier had a, had a list of farms that hired interns. And so I called, I sort of drew a circle around San Francisco cause I didn't want to move. I hardly knew anybody in California and, and I didn't want to move that far from San Francisco. And so I drew a circle and, and, um, uh, visited a few farms, came up to meet Paul. And at the time he was, he was kind of in the process of expanding from probably 10 acres to, uh, onto a new parcel that was, that was going to make him a total of 25 acres. And he was looking for help. I had worked on a friend's farm in Pennsylvania, driving a tractor and he needed a tractor driver. So I, I, I started working for him. I was back then we were all doing everything. We, um, you know, we were, uh, Paul and I were both doing farmer's markets. We did a lot of farmer's markets back then. Um, we were selling to some of the same stores we sell to now, some of the same wholesalers. Um, and I was still spending a lot of time in San Francisco. Um, and some friends of mine wanted to get our produce, but didn't want to go to the farmer's markets we were doing, which were actually on the other side of the, we're in, in the East Bay. And so 
I read about the CSA, heard about CSA, and some other farms were doing it. And so we started our first CSA drop site, one in San Francisco at a friend of mine's house and another one in Berkeley at another friend's house. And, and that's how the CSA got started. Um, I was working on a tractor uh, in 1995 that uh, I ran out of oil and burned up the engine. And, uh, you know, Paul basically said to me, well, you're either fired or, or you have to become a partner. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I chose, I chose the, the partnership route. Um, I had a bit, a little bit of, of cash saved from my retirement account, uh, from when I was working in New York, uh, gave him that to, to put a down payment on a new tractor and, um, or to, or for, rather to pay for the new engine in the, in that tractor. And, and then I was a partner and, um, you know, from that point on, um, he and I, he and I ran the farm, uh, very much the way, you know, a lot of people start small farms. We were, we were off the farm as much as we were on the farm. We were, we were doing five farmers markets a week. I was doing two, he was doing two. Uh, we had somebody else doing one of them. Um, I was doing the CSA drop-offs on one day and he was doing it the other day. So, you know, between the two of us, we were only on the farm three days a week, uh, each we were, we were on the road three days and on the farm three days. And, and that kept up, you know, for 10, 10 years, really, that we were still, we, as our CS, as the CSA grew, we, we did fewer farmer's markets. We would, you know, when the CSA added another hundred boxes, we'd be like, oh, we'll get rid of this market. It's not that great anyway. We found, we got, we found some more land, uh, expanded, expanded our production, expanded the CSA. The whole thing was, was very organic. There wasn't, there wasn't much planning. Um, uh, but because we were right on the forefront in the area of the CSA thing, we were actually, uh, you know, we, we were, we were doing pretty well. Our business was doing pretty well. And, um, you know, our accountant told us you got to do two things. You got to incorporate as we were paying, you know, a ton of taxes and, um, you got to incorporate and you, and you gotta, you, you gotta buy something. Uh, you gotta, we couldn't afford to buy any land. We kept trying to save up to buy land and then we'd have to pay a bunch of taxes cause that's how farming works. You know, you have a good year and you, and you send so much of your money to pay taxes that you have to borrow money the next year to just, to just make your production in the spring. Um, so we actually gave up on our idea of buying, land in in 2000 and we both bought houses in town which our accountant was happy about because <laughs> <laughs> um and then just a couple of years later i was just driving down you know a road that i drove down all the time and there was a sign a little handwritten sign saying 77 acres of land for sale and so i drove down the road and uh this guy basically totally nuts guy who was selling his place and wouldn't deal with any realtors. So, and he mostly chased anybody who came down the driveway away with a shotgun. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> but his wife uh, had known Paul for a long time because he used to sell at the Davis farmer's market. I mean, cause, cause he was selling at the Davis farmer's market and she would, and she would talk to him every week. So 
so anyway, so we were able to buy that piece of land and, um, and that really, that was 80 acres. And so we went from farming, we went from farming 50 acres to 130 acres in the span of a year. Um, and it was a big, wow. a big jump for us, but it was, it seemed like an opportunity that, uh, we weren't going to have again. We actually, uh, didn't even, we didn't even quite have the money to make it happen. I sold my house in town. Um, and we sort of scraped together, um, uh, as much as we could, but we were still short on the down payment. And so we, we, I wrote a newsletter to our subscribers talking about it and saying, you know, um, we'd really like to make this happen. And if anybody can help us and we got 12 or 14 people who offered to loan us anywhere from 500 to $5,000 each to make the down payment happen. And it was literally, we just squeaked in. <laughs> we just, and, and, oh, and, and then when we approached the mortgage lender, I think we were $5,000 short or something like that. We approached the mortgage lender and told them the story and they were so amazed <laughs> that our customers were willing to loan us money <laughs> that they, that, you know, that they, uh, that, that they cut the, the down payment requirement by $10,000 so that we could get there. Wow. Yep. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess it's proof of concept. I mean, proof that you've got a market. Yeah. And, and, you know, that was, that was an interesting experience too, because when I first, when you first go in to talk to this was farm credit, um, you know, and, and it's a very buttoned down, it was a very buttoned down, very, you know, conventional ag, uh, um, environment when I went in there the first time. Um, but I just, we just lucked out cause the, the, our loan officer had just gotten out of, uh, just gotten out of school and, and she, for whatever reason, she was excited about organic agriculture and, and she really kind of went to bat for us on that one. And since then, that's our local farm credit. They've, they've done quite a few loans to, to businesses like ours, to smaller farms, you know, that don't fit the, uh, all the rules that those folks have because they, you know, they're, they've got a square box and, and you're a round peg. <laughs> they're trying to, they're trying to fit everybody into. So, um, it was kind of, a it was an educational experience going through that process. So as a, as a corporation and as a, as a partnership, how do you guys engage in the decision-making process? Well, um, our, 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 partnership is a, we have now we have an, uh, so Hector, Hector, uh, bought into the company just before we incorporated. Um, he approached us. Um, he had actually, he and his family had bought one of the, one of the pieces of land we were farming. We made an offer on it and they outbid us. That was, that was when we were, uh, before he was a partner. Um, and so he had already, he was already one of our landlords. He's an employee, but also one of our landlords. And he approached us and said, you know, now I want to be an owner of the farm. And so, um, you know, that was, that was exciting really, uh, to have a long-term employee who was, who, who with his, who him and his family played such an important role in the farm already, um, step forward to want to do that. Um, and, uh, so, but he's only, he's a, he's a 20% owner and Paul and I are 40%. Um, 
and so it's we have we have a situation where we have to have two people can outvote the other person, but it's pretty rare that we do that. We we tend to do things by consensus. Um, we we're all generally so overwhelmed with our own responsibilities on the farm that, um, and none of us, I don't think is, I mean, I might be a little bit more of a micromanager than either Paul or Hector, but I'm not, I'm definitely not a micromanager. Um, so as long as things are going along well in other people's departments, you know, uh, we don't step on each other's toes a whole lot. And the big decisions, um, amazingly enough, we tend to be, we tend to have no problem achieving consensus on that stuff. We've made a couple of big decisions since we incorporated and, and it's, it's been relatively easy. So I think it's mostly just luck. The things we fight about are really stupid stuff. You know, the, <laughs> the, I mean, really the things that, the things that have caused us the biggest problems, um, uh, I'm sorry, the most challenging things that we've encountered, um, have been pretty easy to manage on a partnership level. It's, it's the little, little niggly stuff that, that will tend to have squabbles about, or even, you know, big fights sometimes. Would you mind sharing an example? Oh, um, yeah, well, um, you know, for the most part, we, we, uh, we manage, we each have employees that we manage on our own. Um, and so there isn't much, uh, you know, like I, I would never tell Hector that I don't like somebody that's working for you. And I think that you should fire them, for example, or, okay. you know, I mean, I might suggest to him, you know, I have a friend who's got this, who's, who's son or daughter is in high school and they seem like a really good person. And, you know, is there a summer work for him in the package shed? But, you know, that's, that's just kind of a different thing, but, um, every, but we do have office staff and, and, <laughs> and every once in a while we'll have somebody in the office who, um, is doing a great job for one or two partners, but not so much for the other partner. <laughs> and, um, and, and we've had, we've had some pretty significant disagreements about that. Um, you know, somebody who's really like somebody who's really good at human resources, for example, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're that they're, that they have a lot of people skills. And so like, you know, they might be doing a fantastic job with all the, all the reporting for workers comp and all that, all that stuff that has to happen in the office. But if they piss somebody off every time they go into the office to ask a question, you know, (laughs) right. So yeah, that's, that's, that's about as much of an example as I can give you (laughs) without giving anything. Yeah. Yeah. So I know one of the things that they, you're going to be facing here in the next couple of years is going to be the implementation of the Food Safety Modernization Act, because clearly you guys are selling a volume of produce that is going to mean that you're you're going to be subject to the full force of the regulation. Um, Can you talk a little bit about about food safety and the FISMA and and how you've been involved in that and how you guys are managing that going forward? Yeah. So so as I I talked to you at the start, um, I, I was I was involved, uh, in, um, the, the, the events leading up to FISMA, uh, quite intimately because I was on the board of directors of, of, of California certified organic farmers. And we went through one after the other with, um, the spinach E. coli outbreak 
and then, or actually the almonds was the first thing that happened and then the spinach and then there was a pistachio salmonella outbreak. And, um, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but, uh, you know, initially the ag industry just tried to blame it all on organic and it's because of the manure, it's because of the manure, it's because of the manure, you know? And, and so we were, we were just scrambling to deal with that. Um, and, and, uh, not just at the, at the level of the media and, um, with with, with our individual customers. Um, but the organization CCF was also dealing with, um, regulators and trying to, you know, defend organic. And so I was, I was, I saw all that coming and, and we had the leafy greens marketing agreement, which was the first thing that was sort of came out after, after the spinach E. coli outbreak. And, and there was a lot of dissension there between the conventional growers and organic growers. And, and, um, so we were involved in that and trying to make sure they didn't ban the use of compost, for example, uh, cause that was, that was talked about quite a bit. And of course, for most of us, uh, compost is, a our main fertilizer, you know? So, uh, right. um, yeah. So when the federal government sort of came to the conclusion that that FISMA was going to happen, we were involved in all the drafts in the commenting, uh, you know, and we were very specifically trying to make sure that they didn't take away, um, organic farmers tools, you know, and, and not just tools. It's, you know, it's, um, well, you know, you're, you're, you're ad, you got an advertiser who's a, a compost maker. I mean, it's, it's a, it's like a central tenant of organic farming. Right. And, and, and the first couple of times they came out with that thing, it was going to be no compost, uh, for six months before you grew a crop. And so, you know, um, it was insane. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, and then I also personally attended listening sessions about that and really pressed the FDA people because, you know, when you went to those things, you got the feeling like they were just trying to sweep your concerns under the rug. But, you know, that's your only opportunity. When you go to one of those things, if, if you don't get on the record, uh, the public record with that, then they don't even have to address your concerns, um, in, in, in their considerations for the legislation. So I asked the guy point blank because we graze, we graze sheep on our cover crops. We graze sheep on our, on our crop residue and also in some of our orchards. And I asked him, three times if they were considering grazing to be an application of raw manure because you know they they were sort of drawing a line between compost you're okay with compost as long as you do it 60 days before harvest or 120 days before harvest Um, they were you know going back and forth on the numbers but raw manure it's six months you know six months until you can harvest a vegetable and 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 so i asked the guy three times and he finally said, he actually got kind of angry with me. He said, grazing animals on crop residue is not applying raw manure. <laughs> and I was like, okay, wow, thank you for saying that. You know, and, and, it, and it was on the public record. And now if you look in FISMA, it's exactly, you know, they are, they are, they treat it as a completely different category. It's akin to wildlife intrusion. You know, so, you know, if, if, uh, if some deer come through your broccoli field right before you're about to harvest, you, there's a whole list of things you got to do. You know, you gotta, 
you got to flat, you got to walk through the field and look for every piece of deer poop. And you got to flag the path that the deer took and you got to measure back 25 feet and either plow that crop down or make sure it's not harvested. You got to document that you're not harvesting it. And the same thing is true with, with, uh, grazing. Um, if you're grazing the animals before you plant, you're fine. If you're grazing your animals two fields over from where you're harvesting and the battery dies on the electric fence and the sheep get out on a Sunday because nobody goes out to check on them and they get into that broccoli field. And, and I'm giving you an example, uh, an example that happened on our farm, um, uh, and start munching on the broccoli and everybody comes in Monday morning and there's like, and they're like the sheep are in the broccoli, you know, guess what? You're, you can't harvest that broccoli field anymore. Right. So, um, but that's a really important difference. What other, what are some other implications that you're going to be dealing with, with the FSMA? What, what's going to have to change on your farm? Well, the, 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 like, uh, the, one of the main things that's going to have to change on a lot of people's farm is, is irrigation. Um, you know, and I think this is going to affect folks in other parts of the country as much or more than it affects us because I know there's a lot of farmers. I mean, you guys back there, um, if you're growing, if you're investing in a vegetable crop, I'm, uh, nowadays I I'm guessing most people have at least some sort of backup irrigation system if, if they don't get any rain during the summer. And if you're pumping out of a Creek or you're pumping out of a pond, um, uh, that's going to be your, your biggest concern because, um, you have to test the water and you have to pass a standard, which is, <laughs> which is not easy to figure out. It's, uh, it's, uh, you practically need a calculus degree to do the math on this thing. Um, because it's a sort of a rolling mean of, of your tests and for surface water, which is, you know, for us, it's, it's water that comes from the reservoir and is delivered to us by a canal. But for you guys, it would be pond or a, or a, or a creek or a stream. Um, you got to do eight tests a year and then take the rolling, this crazy rolling mean. And, um, uh, you know, if you got five tests that are clean and then one that's way off the charts, you know, you might not be able to use that water in a way that it can pot potentially come into contact with the vegetables. Which would, right. which would mean, you know, you can have, you can have drip that's subsurface or you can have drip that's under plastic, but if you have drip that's right next to your plants, that doesn't pass the test because, you know, an emitter comes off or, or something chews on it and sprays the water on your, on your crops. And, um, and that water is, is dirty. And that would be a, that'd be a violation of FSMA right there. So you got, have you guys started that testing routine already? We have. Yeah, we've, um, the, the routine, the testing regime is, is less strict for wells. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a lower bar that you have to do to establish that your well uh, is pumping clean water. You don't have to test as often. And once you sort of prove a baseline, you can test it just once a year. Um, for the surface water, uh, we do, we do irrigate with quite a bit of, of water from, from our local reservoir. And we were worried about that water, but so far we haven't had any problems with the tests that we've done, but it's a lot of money. You know, it's $80 for each of those tests. And we have, we have, um, seven different ranches that we're irrigating with, uh, at, 
and and we have to test some of those ranches eight times a year. You know, you do the math on that. It's it's thousands of dollars a year that we're going to be spending on water testing. Not to mention the labor that goes into it. Sure, and it's a lot of driving. I mean, you you know, you gotta you gotta take that sample uh, and keep it cool and get it to the testing place basically within twelve hours. Otherwise, you're risking. Yeah, you, know, you have a little tiny bit of coliform in that water. If it gets a little bit too warm, that population is going to blow up, and and it, and you're really going to wish you you hadn't taken that sample in because right. it's gonna it's gonna cause you problems. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, on on that uplifting note, Paul. <laughs> sorry. Um, that's, it's okay. That's okay. I I asked the question, yeah, so. Do. We'll, we'll share the blame on that uh, one. Uh, let's let's take a turn to our lightning round. What's your favorite tool on the farm? Um, my favorite tool on the farm is what I mentioned, which is the power harrow. Um, it's it's really the foundation of our of our entire weed control program um, because uh, we irrigate all of our beds uh, eight to twelve hours before planting. We germinate a flush of weeds and knock it down with the power harrow. And then, hey, I want to just ask a question. Yeah. You said you said that you uh, you irrigate eight to twelve hours before planting. I think you meant eight to twelve days. No, I'm sorry. We 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 do an eight to twelve hour irrigation. Um, that is about ten days before we plant. Correct. Um, okay. But we're, what I'm saying is we really soak soak the ground. You know, this isn't this isn't like, and, and we're using we're using overhead sprinklers to do this. So we're 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 getting the whole soil uh top of the bed wet really wet and it stays has to stay wet for a couple days for you to get a good flush of weeds up um if you uh you know if you're going to put pipe out there and just run it for a couple hours <laughs> you might as well not have even done the done the work because weeds are smart and uh you know uh, they know they know the difference between uh, a sprinkler rain and a, and a good solid uh rainstorm and that's what you're trying to that's what you're trying to imitate and then my other uh, my other favorite tool on the farm is is our plastic mulch transplanter, which um, we didn't talk at all about plastic mulch, and we 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 do some plastic mulch, uh, but I try not to do too much. But the planter is this wonderful tool. It's made by a mechanical. Uh, it doesn't move the soil at all, and it flies across the field, um, and and you can transplant. Uh, we use it not just in plastic, but also for our bare soil when we're planting tomatoes, uh, specifically for tomatoes, but also for other things like uh, melons and uh, summer squash. And you can, you can run that thing so fast uh, that you have to slow the tractor down to turn around at the end of the field. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. You'll throw the, you just, you'll knock the person who's sitting on the back right off if you, uh, if you turn around as fast as you're driving through the field. Some of each, but it's a, it's a, like a Ferris wheel. It's like a giant Ferris wheel. Uh, so the, the planting cups come at you, um, and, 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 and then they punch into the ground and they split in half and open up and drop the plant in. So it's the opposite of a carousel planter. Carousel planters is, you know, uh, spinning, uh, in a horizontal plane. And this is spinning in a vertical plane because the, the, um, the planting cups are actually what penetrate the soil and, and, and plastic, if you've got the plastic there. Um, but 
but they move so fast that no soil is moved in the process. You know, they open, they open a, they open a hole and drop the plant in at the same time. And then they're up and out of there. And then the next one comes down. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really wonderful machine. Very cool. And what's your favorite crop to grow? Uh, my favorite crop to grow is cover crops. That's my favorite thing to do is, is planting cover crops. But, um, I, I, as far as cash crops, um, I have the two part answer. I, we grow, we do one planting of fennel a year, bulb fennel. And I love growing fennel because, because of the, not because of when we plant it, which is at the hottest time of summer, but because of when we harvest it, uh, it's, it just is this, by the time we're harvesting it, it's this big, lush, uh, fragrant, beautiful plant that's super fast and easy to pick. And, and I like to eat it. It, uh, um, people like to buy it. So that's, I wish we could grow more of it, but it's, it's a very short season for us in, in this area between the hot and cold weather. But, um, our farm is, is best known for heirloom tomatoes. That's, uh, what I spend the majority of my time in, in, in the summertime doing is, or actually all year is, is, is planning, uh, planning for the crop, um, getting it planted, managing it through every, every stage. Um, our, our cover, our fertility program is all based around providing as much fertility as possible for that crop. Um, and the, and that crop has been a big part of, of the financial successes that we have had. Um, even though they almost put us out of business a couple of times too. (laughs) (laughs) How did they almost put you out of business? Oh man. I mean, you know, by the time you, you start harvesting that crop, you've, you've already spent, uh, 10 or $15,000 an acre. Um, so, um, and they are very, they are very fickle about the weather and, um, both when they're, when they're uh, blooming and when we're harvesting them. And so we had a year, uh, I think it was 2006 where we had 21 days in a row where it was over hundred degrees. And when it gets really hot and stays hot, uh, the tomatoes just start coming off the plants so fast that we can't keep up with them. And, and it's a macro event happens for everybody else who's growing them too in our area. So the market gets flooded, you know, it's a niche market. It's your, it's a market that's based on you getting a high dollar value, uh, because of how much it costs to grow. And, and when the market gets flooded, it's just turned, it's a disaster. Right. Yeah. So uh, I think that year we walked away from, Oh, more than half of our 15 acres that we had planted. Ouch. So we lost, Ouch. Yeah, we lost, yeah. we lost, we lost, easily lost, you know, six, six figures on that crop that year. Wow. And finally, if you could go back in time, tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Buy stock and apple. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, two things, uh, two things, uh, one sort of humorous, more, less humorous than that. But, um, when I first started farming, I, uh, I, I got laid off from my job actually when I, when I first started working and, um, and I was on unemployment when I started working on the farm. And, um, in retrospect, what I should have done minimum wage back then was four twenty five, which is what I was getting paid in 1993 to work for, to work for my partner, who's now my partner. Um, and, uh, I, in retrospect, I should have just 
told him that I wanted to volunteer. <laughs> and uh, although technically, of course, that's illegal, but, um, but, and, and kept getting unemployment because uh, I would have, I would have saved up a little more money that would have come in handy later. But that's just my way of telling people, I, um, I, in retrospect, I think that doing something else, even if you're sure you want to farm, um, it, uh, even if you have, uh, even if you, if you grew up in a farm family and I, and I know some people, some good friends of mine now who did and whose parents actually made them go do something else, you know, for four five, six, seven years before they would let them come back on the farm to work not just because they wanted to be sure that they wanted to farm, but also because they wanted them to save up some money because it's hard to save money when you're, when you're farming and yet you need a lot of money to farm, uh, even on a small scale. Uh, and so don't be in a rush to, to start your farm. Um, especially if you're coming from, a, if, especially if you have other skills that you can, you can make some money at and save some money. Um, so in, in retrospect, um, and then the other thing, the other thing that I wish I, somebody had told me, uh, when I was first farming was it has to do with employees, which is, um, don't expect to find too many employees who are willing to work as hard as you do <laughs> because you're really setting yourself up for disappointment there and you're just going to piss a lot of people off um, and people that you need to help you. Um, and I did that when I was first farming and I, I really regret that. Um, and then the corollary of that is if you do find people who are willing to work hard, you know, do everything you can to make sure they know how much you appreciate them because um, you know, we're all limited financially in how much we can pay, pay people, uh, in agriculture, but, um, you know, we're not limited in our ability to tell people, you know, thank you so much for the work you're doing and you did a great job. And even if you screwed this up, you know, I, I know you were trying hard and I appreciate it because, um, you know, that makes a huge difference at the end of the day. Paul Underhill, thank you so much for being on the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thank you for having me, Chris. It was, it was really an honor to, to get to talk to you for a bit. And likewise. Thank you. All right. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 82 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Underhill. That's U-N-D-E-R-H-I-L-L. Don't forget, you can support the show by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. Your support makes a big difference to us, whether you're providing ongoing support through our Patreon page or making a one-time donation or making your Amazon.com purchases through our affiliate link at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash Amazon. You can bookmark that and use that anytime you go on to Amazon.com to do your shopping and Amazon will kick back a percentage of what you purchase back to us at no extra cost to you. It all helps us keep the tractor running. Reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of our business, so if you enjoy the show, please bounce on over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. You can sign up for my email list at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, I do love to get your guest suggestions. This episode is a direct result of those, so please keep them coming at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. Farmer to Farmer.